The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Enjoy. Father, you are a God who cares for us. And a God who has given us your word that we can hear it can grow up into it by the power of your spirit and become something sweet. A community that, that walks with you in your power, in delight in you and with one another. A community. It's a sweet thing. Would you help us hear these words? Hear where they, where perhaps they confront us and, and where they comfort us and where they correct us, to hear these words and to grow in them by your spirit and become something sweet. All by you. So all praise and honor will be to you as you deliver to us the, the goodness from this passage. Please do it. Lift up the sun and build your church and I pray in his name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the beginning of Luke chapter 17, where we find another shift in topic and a little bit of shift in audience as well. The previous chapter, as you'll recall, was concerned with the topic of wealth and with Jesus' right to tell us what to do with it. Most notably, the parables at the beginning and at the end of the chapter strongly encouraged disciples, while also confronting opponents, particularly the Pharisees, but it encouraged disciples with the idea of using wealth to gain for ourselves treasure in heaven, to gain for ourselves friends there and true riches from God there. Disciples, we learned, are to live generously, commending the generous God of grace, showing what he's like, making him appear as attractive as he is by how we live commending the generous God of grace as we depend on him and thereby influencing other people towards him. But in the call to live generously, we have to notice that the real call, the, the real issue is one of the heart. What, what's going on within us? Do we, do we serve, do we love, depend on, look to God for life? Or on the contrary, do we love, serve, depend on, look to wealth, mammon for life? Said of him. That, that's the real issue. And ironically, we could write very large checks and give away lots of money and still not be the, the kind of heart-generous, heart-God-oriented people that, that really God's, God's wanting in us. The issue is really one of the heart. That was last chapter. Now as we move to this chapter, we have a different setting, a different topic, or perhaps rather a collection of topics. Verses 1 to 10 have several short little sections that, that some experts believe are not actually linked together. They're just clustered together. Separate little teachings for disciples. Things Jesus said on the road as he's, as he's walking along teaching. If they're not linked together, they should be dealt with individually. And you can even look at some of your translations, and there might be headings kind of subdividing all these things. Maybe. We're going to deal with verses 1 to 10 all together this morning, though, because I'm more inclined to see a thread that runs through the whole. 
making each of the little smaller subsets, I, I think a little bit like, like links in a chain. They, they are connected to one another and it, as a whole give us some better picture of what, of what it looks like to be a disciple. But they do kind of move to different places as, as the, the chain progresses. So they're linked, but they're not like super tight one ball, maybe like a chain. Think of it like that. So we're going to address verses 1 to 10, look at them all together. I'm going to make three observations from these, these verses. But first, let me read them, and then we'll move to observe from them. This is Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Luke 17, verses 1 to 10. I'm going to make three observations from this section. Here's the first. It will kind of move through the, through the passage. Here's the first in the beginning part. Disciples are called to fight sin in one another and to forgive continually. Disciples are called to fight sin in one another and to forgive continually. Jesus begins by speaking to disciples about temptation to sin. And, and really, at, at this point in the passage, these four verses obviously all deal with sin here, but at this point, the very beginning, he has something in particular in mind, not just really any old type of sin. By the end, by verses 3, 4, he is dealing with more broadly, more, more generic sin. Sin that's done, you'll see, against me. That could be just anything. But towards the beginning, he has in view something more specific that is of more serious nature because he wants to alert us all, all the body, to the existence of really destructive, faith-threatening sin. So towards the beginning, we need to keep in mind, particularly because of the warning that's coming, we need to keep in mind that he's not just thinking of initially sin as like, well, I gossiped and I tempted you to gossip, and therefore a millstone should be hung around my neck. He's got something more serious in view here initially. Literally, he talks about 
stumbling blocks are sure to come. Translated probably temptations of sin, literally stumbling blocks, something that threatens someone within the church even with stumbling and falling. So don't think of stumble as like you stub your toe and you're okay. Think of stumble as you stumble and you fall down. Maybe a different picture. Think of not just I, I'm led astray into sin, but I'm led astray onto a different path and I'm walking away from God. So a stumbling block that makes me fall or, or something that leads me away from the walk with God. That's what he has in view here initially. He just spent a whole chapter talking about a great big one. Wealth. Wealth and wealth itself and the teaching or or a lifestyle that makes it look very attractive and and very tempting and and very enticing to to draw someone to trust it instead of God. So see what he's getting at here. It's not just that I was not generous in a particular situation, but that I am led astray into the love of money. That led astray into the love of money is the stumbling block. That kind of thing that he has in view here initially. Something serious. And that like wealth or like other stumbling blocks, many things, false teachings, deceptive things that would lead me astray, those kinds of things are sure to come in the world, given the kind of world that we live in. But woe to you if they come through you. That's what he says. The word woe, it's a statement of judgment. It's a word that, a, that a, a prophet often says in the Bible. You hear it on the lips of a judge. Woe, it's, it's a statement about sorrow and condemnation and loss to you. And the next image underlines with hyperbole the seriousness of this. If you were to be the one who caused one of these little ones to sin. In the verse 2 there, look how he, how he dresses. You see the care of God here. You see the care of God for his people here. One of these little ones, one of the, the little ones of my, of my small flock. I care about these ones. I, I'm tender-hearted towards them. And if you were to be one who would cause one of these little ones to walk away from me and miss me, be, be deprived of walking with me and, and maybe lose out on reward in heaven or perhaps even lose out on heaven itself, if you were to be one like that, woe to you. would be better off if a gigantic stone was tied around your neck and you were thrown over a ship into the sea. Which, of course, is, is just for dramatic effect because that actually wouldn't help. He's, he's trying to say, it'd be better for you to be sunk and pinned to the bottom of the ocean than to face what God will do to you. But that wouldn't actually protect you from what God will do to you. From the wrath of God. What's he trying to say there? I care about my sheep. I care about my people. Don't lead them away from me. I want them near me. Watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. He wants us to be alert to ourselves, to watch not just me, but not, not me. Watch me and we watch we. Watch yourselves. 
This is the connection between the first little section and the second little section. Because initially, watch yourself. He wants us to be thinking about, I best not lead someone astray in this way. And I best watch out. I best watch for other wolves in sheep's clothing. And I best watch, well, not just for that, but for all kinds of other sin. I need to watch myself. I need to watch the body for wolves. And I need to watch those who might be being led astray and and tempted to stumble into sin, actually into any kind of sin. So notice the progression here. He leaves the first section and kind of moves into the second section still on a theme of fight sin. Things that lead people astray are sure to come. Be careful that it not be you. Be careful that it not be anybody around. In fact, watch everybody. Watch for sin in the body. Stumbling blocks, watching myself, watching other people, and watching other people for sin in the body. Fight against sin. And if you see a brother in sin in some way, this is verse 3, if your brother sins, whether great, the laying out of a stumbling block, the stumbling over the stumbling block, or, or any kind of sin, in fact, He's moving here through his progression. What do you do? What does he say? Steer clear of him. Avoid her. She's trouble. Is that what it says? No. Maybe you think, hey, it's, you know, it's her life. Whatever floats your boat. Plus, I think if I probably get involved in that, I'm going to be accused of meddling and be called judgmental or nosy. Call me unloving. So, in many of our minds, watch. And if a brother sins, keep your head down and your mouth shut and mind your own business and let God deal with it. Is that what it says? No. This is how God plans to deal with it. We are our brothers and sisters' keepers around each other by God's design in a body to keep each other awake, attentive, alert to stumbling blocks and inclined to fight over and around them and in fact alert to all kinds of sin. This is hard, challenging, but it's God's plan. It's right here in this verse. Watch yourselves and if a brother sins, Rebuke him. Which, we can't read that word and not feel a little bit of that in it. Rebuke is a stiff word. Maybe some of your translations say admonish because it's a little more fuzzy. But it's a stiff word. So we need to hear that, but then we need to think as we understand what Jesus' intent here is. Why he's using this word and what he's trying to get at. Rebuke is strong and confrontational. It is is a clear and a a stark exposure of something wrong. And and then a highlighting, by contrast, a highlighting of what would be right. 
So Jesus uses this word because for the, the sake of that brother that you just saw, a brother or sister that you just saw sin, for the sake of his honor in the body, for the sake of all of us, really, who need to be protected from things like stumbling blocks or things like, like a reputation of being less than holy, for the sake of, of all of that, he wants to make clear that his command to us is to be, to be clearly exposing, clearly bringing into the light what is wrong and highlighting what is right and to call people to righteousness and away from destructive sin. He doesn't want us to stop short of that, which is clear because he uses the word rebuke rather than things like mention it or frown upon it or avoid it. So, to call us to rebuke sin is to call us to stand up against it, to fight against it, and to not tolerate it and allow it, turn a blind eye towards it. Okay, that's the hard part. But to keep thinking about it, that doesn't mean that we have to, in, in some way, like grit our teeth and wag our finger and shout. We can rebuke sin sometimes with a quiet voice and a smile or with tears. I had a professor one time who talked about particularly needing to deal with with married couples in marriage counseling and he said, you would be surprised. He's kind of giving advice to all of us young people. You'd be surprised what you can say to people with a smile on your face. And if you have the right attitude, you actually can smile in the middle of it and just say it clearly. You know, that's wrong. Where do you get off doing that? You don't have to shout, wag your finger at them. You, you can sometimes say, or at least start with, a soft voice and with a smile or with tears. And sometimes, in fact, that's the wisest and most effective way to, deli to deliver a true rebuke. Think of how the prophet Nathan talked to King David. He did not walk in, bring his soapbox, jump up on it and say, you adulterous murderer. That's not how it went. Because it probably wouldn't have went. Can I tell you a story, David? That's how it went. But he was rebuked, was he not? And even at the end when he says, you are that man, we, we don't have a whole lot about the, the, the discussion there, or the attitude there, but it does not need to be thought of as him shouting. It's just a clear, that's you. What, what I'm getting at here is, is rebuke, the word rebuke kind of helps us to understand what we're after here. What we're after is non-tolerance but a fighting against sin. And then we have to say, now wisely, what would be the best way to, to get about that? And maybe gritted teeth and shouting is not the best way. Maybe even, in fact, for some bit, for some first, maybe some second step, we should also keep in mind, let love cover over a multitude of sins. Maybe I need to bring in other wisdom from the Bible. But the whole, the whole point is, I must not be, we must not be a people who tolerate sin, who turn a blind eye to it. But in fact, when we see it, we address it. 
to expose it and turn people from it, which is where the passage goes, towards repentance. We must not tolerate sin, but must fight it. If your brother sins, do not tolerate it, but wisely address it with the goal of what? Bringing about repentance. Not condemnation. Repentance. A turning from. And acknowledging and understanding, now that you have confronted that, now that you have rebuked it, I clearly see that and I turn from it. I'm, I'm trying to speak to a person, a brother, a sister, with the goal of not just putting them in their place, but no, with the goal of bringing about repentance, a turning. And if he repents, forgive him. Repentance, which would lead to forgiveness. And verse 4 might hint at, when it also might lead to more sin and more confronting of sin and more repentance and more forgiveness. Continually so, in fact. Seven times a day, but of course not just seven, not just eight, not just nine. What he's getting at with the number of fullness is continually, unceasingly. If he sins, big or small, if he sins against you, against me, seven times in a day continually, what do you do? You fight against it wisely. You rebuke it in a wise way designed to lead to repentance so that you can forgive again and again and again and again and again. But won't that just enable sin? I mean, isn't that going to just enable to, to give a, a permission slip to keep on saying? Doesn't that ignore the seriousness of this sin? How can I protect myself and keep myself from being abused or taken advantage of? The sin that he did to me hurts so much and is so deep and so painful and for so long. I mean, how, how can I... I can't, I shouldn't, in fact, forgive seven times, let alone for seven years. I just can't let that go. And, and frankly, I don't think he really means it. That kind of stuff kind of rises to our minds when we see something like this. And those are important questions. They often come with a lot of kind of pained heart experience behind them so i hear that there's no way i can deal with all of it here i need to say two things one the most astounding example that we just saw of astonishing grace and mercy the father and the prodigal son still included consequences keep that in mind great forgiveness that still included consequences and second, hear this clearly, nothing in this passage can ever be used as justification for concealing and continuing abuse in relationships. Let me just say that clearly. That's where you are, you bring that to the light. Part of exposing and fighting against sin is bringing sin to the light so that it can be dealt with. But having said that a little bit, 
we all need to hear and feel the weight of this. Forgive continually. What an immensely difficult command. How do we do this? And it's, it's important that we sit and, and let that kind of come, come clearly and, and come all the way home until you actually kind of maybe move out of the intellectual exercise here into the experiential and say, yeah, how do I forgive somebody? Something serious and real. For a number of us, forgiveness is, is challenging, but it's kind of challenging on the level of, he insulted my hair, and I'm angry at him. I am angry, but if you, if you think about that, that's not really that big of a deal. That's totally different than he slept with another woman. That's totally different, and that's real too. And that's in the passage. Not word for word, but that's included in this kind of thing. That's totally different. And in our minds, perhaps, we think I'm talking about he insulted my hair or looked down on me in public or said something mean or stole a contract at work. And... <laughs> we're not talking about that. We're not talking about adultery. Yeah, we are. Oh, that just got hard. Yeah, it did. It did. It really did. Because sin is real and awful. Sin is real and awful. And I don't just mean awful at the, at the judgment seat. I mean awful here. You get, continue with that example, you got two people that said, you know, till death do us part, and then one of them did something. And probably the other one did something too. But we could leave marriage aside and we could move on to any other relationship. And any two people, sin wrecks, sin ruins, sin rips apart. And, and maybe it is certainly possible that the rebuking part is hard for, for some of us who are, who are a, little more, um, a little more inwardly focused, a little more withdrawn, a little less confident. But the forgiving part is immensely difficult once you've actually been sinned against. Really sinned against. Forgive. Seven times he comes and says, I repent. You must forgive him. 
how can you do that? The world would love to know. You realize how this works in the world is we, d- we decide to never speak of that again. Or never speak to you again. We speak of it to other people, but never to you again. That, that's how the world deals with this. We cut off, we cut off, we cut off. We attempt to say, hey, that's all right, that's okay, as long as we're never around one another ever again, that's just fine. That's, that's, the best, that's the best we can get at with the resources that we have in the flesh. In other words, we don't forgive. We cope. And what happens from that is there is no community, there is no actual relational wholeness because there can be no such thing as truth and union. If, if the truth ever comes out, it breaks. So we can't do, here with what we have in, in our own hands, in our own hearts, we can't do what this passage is about. Confront sin so as to fight against it and remove it out and then create a community that is united and is is sweet with one another. We, we just can't do that. It can't happen. But we long for it. We know we want it. How do you do this? Well, this is, this is some, like, real bread and butter beauty of the gospel. Because the only way this can actually get done, a person can, can look at sin, can call it sin, can confront it as sin, can know what it is, and then can forgive it. The only way that actually gets done is when we recall the one who did not tolerate but fought against our own sin, confronted it in us, but not for condemnation's sake. For the sake of repentance and forgiveness. Who himself bore the cost of our sin. There is a cost to be borne when you forgive sin. You, you feel it, maybe you've never thought of it as, as bearing a cost, but you feel it because when the person does something wrong and they repent, what you have to say is the pain of that, I am agreeing to just eat. Like, kind of like you eat a loss in a financial, I'm just going to eat the loss. I'm going to eat the pain. I'm going to carry it and what I want to do is I want to exact the pound of flesh back from you so that, I, so that we're even. But we're not going to be even. I'm just going to say, I forgive. I bear the cost. There's a cost born in forgiveness. And here's one in our minds we remember him. Who bore the cost of our sin, bore himself the shame of our rejection of him. Here is one who is God Almighty, and we said, and he bore that and still does bear it. He is the Lord, and we despised and rejected him, slighted him and regarded him as unworthy, and he endured it. And then bore the penalty due for that attitude in us. He was a man of sorrows all through his life as he carried on himself the shame and the pain inflicted on him as we defamed him. 
as he walked as a mere man, as a servant on the earth. And then he bore on top of that, bore the penalty due to us for that attitude afflicted on him. He double carried it. And so he offers then to us, here, you can be forgiven. I have borne the penalty. And amazingly, continually, that still goes on day after day. Do you realize that he still acts as an intercessor on behalf of you and I, his people? There is still, I sometimes find it helpful to kind of picture this almost graphically. There is still a heavenly court arena in which we still have an accuser of our soul day by day by day who calls up your case in front of the judge and says, look at Steve. Today, you say you're a holy judge. Today, he regarded Christ as worthless. And who's your defense attorney? Christ. You did what? Yeah, I know that you did. I will defend you on that. I will bear the shame of that, the humiliation of that. I know you regarded me as that. I will bear that. And then I will speak to the judge and say, look, here, see the cross, see the marks of the cross. Would you forgive him, my client, yet again today? And the judge says, yes. He pleads. He pleads. He pleads for you daily, 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 forgiving you not just once, but again and again and again. This is who Jesus is, and if, if he fills our minds, if this one fills our minds, we find there a model and a help, both a model and a help in our quest to be a forgiving person, a forgiving Christian. A model, we're looking at that, we're seeing that's how it's done. You carry it and then you forgive it. But more than a model, just, not just that, but a help. That is a helper who lives inside of us, God the Holy Spirit. He helps us not just shows us what to do, helps us to do it. The Spirit who lives inside of us, who lives inside of you, Christian, gives you power to bear the shame of being sinned against, gives you power to bear the pain of it, gives you power to deny your own desire for retribution and honor. How does he do that? By promise. He does it by promise. This is key. By promising that all the rights, all the rights lost to you will be fixed, will be restored. By promising that all the pains inflicted upon you will be healed and filled up. By promising that, that every bit of injustice done, and every bit of he pulled the wool over my eyes again, he falsely repented yet again, every bit of that he promises me, will be taken care of. You can read this in 1 Peter 2. This is the model that Christ gave, and then he gives us the Spirit to walk after him in it. He was a man who was despised and rejected, who was reviled and did not return reviling for that, but instead did what? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When we are sinned against, this is where we stand. We stand sinned against, we hear the repentance, we think, I don't think you actually was repentant. But that's not mine to judge. I forgive. And I step out of the middle and say, here, let me entrust you to the one who judges justly. I step out. 
that's critical. He gives us, in saving us, He gives us His Spirit to live inside of us that then remind, that speaks to, reminds us, and renews our mind with these truths so that we actually see them and believe them. That here's a God who will carry all of my shame and all of my pain and will do justice because He's my God and looks upon me as His little one and His favor is on me and He loves me. That's how I can forgive. That's how I can do what I must do. I must forgive him, it says. You must forgive her, it says. And God, by his spirit in you, enables you to do so. Which leads us to the second point. These are going to have to be shorter. And they are. Here's a second observation. The Christian in faith is able to do what may seem impossible. The Christian in faith is able to do what may seem impossible. Verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, these are the kind of core believers. They are actually people who are followers. They, they trust him. But they say, increase our faith. The connection seems to be that they heard everything just said there and said, whoa, we can't do that. Lord, help us increase our faith. Come on, I mean, forgive people who sin against you again and again and again and again and again. Call people on their sin? No way. You're going to have to give me more faith. I can't do that. And while, on the one hand, we do talk about God increasing our faith, God stretching our faith muscles, we talk about that sometimes. And it's fine to talk about growing in trust of Jesus. That's all good and fine and appropriate, but in this context right here, Jesus actually rejects that idea to emphasize a different point. You, we, don't need more faith. Verse 6, And the Lord said, If you have faith like a small little seed, one of the tiniest little seeds, if you have faith like a mustard seed, just little, you could say to this mulberry tree, this tree that has this great big root system, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Not literally. It makes no sense for a tree to be planted in the ocean. Not literal. It's just an expression, one of extreme impossibility. I find it helpful to think about this and kind of see it, and it, it makes more sense if I put it in some modern terms because I don't grasp mulberry trees and oceans and expressions. So put it in modern terms, when we look at something impossible, we sometimes say, that'll happen when pigs fly. And Jesus is responding with just a drop of faith, you can say to the pig, fly. And it'll sprout wings, hop in the air, and soar off. Which again, is not literal. Rather, it's an issue about possibility. 
When we say or think, when pigs fly, what we mean is, that ain't never going to happen. Not never. When pigs fly. Not just unlikely, hard to imagine, but impossible, undoable, given the circumstances. And Jesus is responding, don't you think like that. Nope. Don't you think like that. What you think is impossible is possible. You, you Christian, you think, he said, what? Rebuke? Forgive? He said, what? I can't do that. Not with what I have. I need more than I have. I can't. You don't need more. You don't stand incapable. You are not unequipped. You are not too weak or too small. What you think is undoable given the circumstances totally doable given the circumstances because what in fact are the circumstances one drop one tiny seed of genuine faith the faith we already have much like we have i have the muscle strength i have the the, the capability of lifting up this book i have it i've not lifted it up yet i have that we have the faith that we need and if exercised if exercised, if stepped into in obedience, what he says is, is, pos- is that the impossible is possible. And he wants us to envision it as so. Such small, genuine faith will put into our hands the one thing we need, which is Christ trusted The amount of faith is not the issue. The genuine nature of the faith and the object of the faith, that's the issue. That's what matters. There's an old illustration, perhaps you've heard this, in countless places. Two men, one man barely believes, believes with just mustard seed-sized faith, but he believes that the ice on some particular lake will hold him. You've probably heard this one. But think about it. And so he has, he has faith. He steps out and stays dry, much to his delight and surprise. And the other man, in rock-solid, sure, loud-mouthed, boastful confidence about how he's going to walk across the lake on this ice, steps out, and in his mountain-sized faith, falls through and gets wet, much to his dismay and surprise. Why? What made the difference? Not the faith, the ice, right? Mustard-sized faith, a little bitty faith, stepping out onto three feet of ice, will stay dry, and bold confidence will crash through a sixteenth of an inch every single time. It is not the amount of faith that matters. It's the thing that you in faith stand on. All we need to do the impossible, like speak up about sin, 
and forgive when it hurts and embarrasses and is tiresome and all sorts of other impossible things. Great things that God calls us to. Obedience in hard spots. Forgive this person again. That hurts, that hurts so much. I can't do it. Yes, you can. To humble ourselves and repent, to apologize. Have you ever noticed? Have you ever tried to and noticed how hard it feels to say to someone in person, to their face, I was wrong when I said, when I did, will you please forgive me? Have you ever noticed how hard it is to say that? It feels impossible sometimes. Because it is everything in us that our stiff-necked, proud hearts resist. Because it is a, I was totally in the wrong. I'm not, I mean, I don't want to say like half it was your fault because you said. No, I was wrong. And I humble myself. Will you please forgive me? The decision is yours. I'm putting my head on the block, so to speak, and it feels like nothing in me wants to do that. It is very difficult, maybe even impossible, to deny ourselves immediate pleasure in the service of the kingdom, to give generously, to love neighbor as self, and even to love enemy, to build a church in service and in love to one another, to share the gospel with a co-worker, to be honest in the office, even when it's going to impact your job prospects, your future, your paycheck, to turn the other cheek that's going to mean shame to you and make you look weak, to work hard at your dead-end job in joy, to make dinner unthanked, one more time. To change yet another diaper anonymously and grossly. To do the impossible that God calls you to do. What do you need to do that? Christ. The Spirit of God filling you directing and empowering you. And that happens when you turn to Christ truly with just a little bit of faith, but you turn to him truly and say, God, help me. God, help me. Will you help me to step out here? Will you help me to believe? That's faith. Will you help me to believe the promises about the future that will enable me to do what I'm called to do right now? Lord, you must carry me. You must control my mind and my heart. This puts into your hands, this, this faith that turns to and puts into your hands the one effective truth tool, God's spirit in you. And maturity is just learning to walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, to more consistently by faith turn to him and receive into your hand that tool, the Spirit of God in you by faith. So that means by faith. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, remember, faith is always forward-looking. You've heard it in different pieces of this already. It's, faith is forward-looking. We do not have any faith that the sun rose yesterday. Faith applies to the sun rising tomorrow. Faith is forward-looking, always, always. 
And so faith is forward-looking at a promise for a Christian, at a promise from God. Namely, that God, because I am in Christ, and because God's smile is on me, that God, in some way, at some point, somehow or another, will meet me as he has promised to with grace, with goodness. Maybe 10 seconds from now, after I step out into what he called me to, maybe 10 years from now, I don't have any idea. But I believe that he will meet me maybe right after I let go of that indignation in my heart that's just the beginning of forgiveness. Maybe right then in that moment, 10 seconds from now, God will flood my mind with the realization of his forgiveness of me and his nearness to me and his smile on me and his, his promise to make all things right and good. Maybe it'll happen in 10 seconds, maybe 10 years from now. But in faith, I see the promise and the Spirit of God says, it's true. It's true. Believe it. That's God at work in me. And the grace of God then falls on me, falls on you, and works through me. Seemingly impossible things will happen in and through you, probably more than you asked or imagined. And when those kinds of things happen, the seemingly impossible things, we may be inclined at one point or another, or others may be inclined to look at us at one point or another and begin to think much of us. And that takes us to the third point. This is just the normal Christian life, unworthy of merit or boasting. This is just the normal Christian life, unworthy of merit or boasting. Jesus approaches this by way of illustration, and you can read it there. I'm going to skip through it for time's sake. The whole point is nobody writes a thank you note to their servant after he just did his job. He just did his job. He didn't go above and beyond the call of duty. He did his duty like he's supposed to. Nobody would think much of that. And Jesus' point then, this is the place where Christians stand when we do what we are commanded by God to do. In this context, when we trust Christ and seemingly impossible things happen through us, like the body upbuilt and people kept back from sin and walking in happy, unified forgiveness, some other people might be tempted to look at that and look at our involvement in it and say, wow, look at what you did. I'm amazed at you. Wow. What an awesome lesson. Wow, what a great sermon. What stunning generosity, amazing patience. You are so tender-hearted and so skillful in how you confronted that sin and, and so generous and so meek and so humble in forgiveness. And your, your hospitality, the, the way you lay out all the, the needs that we have and the way you wisely deal with the needs of the God. Amazing. 
They may be tempted to say that, or we may be able to think that. We may stumble into pride thinking, yeah, look, I just did something. I plucked up a mulberry tree and I planted it in the ocean. Wow. But what we are supposed to realize and respond with is actually, I'm just an unworthy servant, same as everybody else. That's the last sentence. We are unworthy servants. And if you think about unworth, you might see in there another way this is sometimes translated is useless or worthless. Really, I, our response always, really, I'm nothing. Really. I'm just an unworthy servant, same as everyone else. I just did what I was supposed to do. I planted or watered like commanded. He gave the increase. He made all things new. Let us boast only in the Lord. That was continually major and everlasting perspective of the Apostle Paul. He never saw himself as worthy of any honor or acclaim, never merited or deserved anything from God, which made it all the more astounding, all the more astounding that God would give him such a ministry and that God would bestow on him favor and honor because he is unworthy of any favor and honor. This is the landing point of the passage. It needs to be the landing point of every disciple and it pulls everything together and keeps us from arrogance and from independence and superiority. I'm just an unworthy servant saved by another servant who humbled himself to serve and save and then he gave each of us the ministries that he has given to us and was working through us like a great power in a jar of clay to make crystal clear that the power, the light inside of it, is not from the jar, but from him. It's his surpassing power that planted the mulberry tree in the ocean, that changed people, that enabled me to turn the other cheek and to forgive, that enables everything that we do that is seemingly impossible, but possible in Christ. It is Christ who does it. And therefore, there is no ground for boasting. And, and all of us are set level at the foot of the cross. And then can all say to one another, that can be your experience too, because you have the same little bit of faith that I have and the same Christ that I have. You don't need to become somebody different. You need to walk with him as he does his work in us. So we're way late here, and I imagine I missed several things. But I hope I didn't miss the point, or that you didn't miss me missing the point. What we need is Him. And we receive all that He means to be for us in any moment as we turn to Him and trust Him that will involve us stepping out in obedience and doing hard things. But that as we recognize that he's the one who does it, we are kept in humility and amazing things happen. The kingdom actually comes. He brings it in and through us. Let me pray. Father, would you please make clear to us the, the sweetness of this passage that you will do amazing things. You will create a community that is good. You will do it. Press that home to us and give us faith to believe it. Fill us with your spirit. 
And the particular issue here of of addressing sin and, and forgiving. Would you grow us in that? And would you make us a people who are remarkably clear about sin and remarkably quick and gracious about forgiveness? Help us with that, Lord, we pray. Build your church. Fill us with your spirit and build your church. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.